Good morning again. Uh, once again, thank you everyone who's contributed today. Um, I've been blessed. I hope that you have as well. Um, we sung about adoring the king, the one whose name is above all names. And this really is uh, kind of the theme of our passage today uh, that has to do with magnifying, praising, exalting the Lord. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, looking at verses 46 through 49, Luke 1, 46 to 49. Uh, so you can turn there in your Bibles with me, and uh, we're going to open up here in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your great kindness to us. We thank you for Christmas, and we thank you for um, the praise that we've been able to sing here this morning. We pray that it would be received by you, that you would help us to sing and to worship you in spirit and in truth and with pure hearts and motivations that desire nothing but your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have uh, a lot of fond memories of Christmas as a child. Christmas for us was usually a three-day celebration at minimum. Um, Christmas Eve, we would go over to a relative's house uh, and we would feast. And then Christmas Day, we would go over to my grandparents' house and feast. And then the day after Christmas, we would go usually back to my grandparents' house and feast again. And then there was oftentimes leftovers still, and so we would go back the next day and feast some more. Um, Christmas for me growing up was being surrounded by family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Christmas, of course, for me was Italian, okay? So meatballs, tomato sauce, cheese, uh, Italian cookies, pie, laughter, opening up presents, being together, Christmas lights in downtown. And I will confess to you that there are uh, uh, some Christmases where I wish I could just go back and be right there all over again. It is really hard to be an Italian Christmas. Just, it is. <laughs> um, and... Uh, Christmas is, I think, um, I mean, it really is a, a, a wonderful time of the year um, in, in many ways. And Christmas is, I think, I think in many ways, Christmas is an altar of remembrance to a bygone era. And what I mean by this is that societal and cultural observances of Christmas here in America are increasingly hollow, meaningless and empty. Uh, you can imagine perhaps maybe a wedding reception filled with laughter and celebration and music, dancing and feasting, and you walk up to someone who's in attendance there and you say, oh, how do you know the bride and groom? And he responds, I, I didn't know this was a wedding, so I just walked in off the street. There's a wedding? What's going on here? And, and, and he's, he's in on that celebration with no reason to celebrate, just stumbled in across uh, off the street. And I think in, in some ways that's kind of what it is, like go, is going on in today's culture. We live in a day and age where Christmas is celebrated 
but we don't even know what we're celebrating. Many people today will just simply go through those uh, hollow motions of Christmas without understanding what actually is going on here. Like a toddler standing in the presence of a great work of art cannot possibly comprehend its worth. So many Americans sing of Christ at Christmas and as it were stand in his presence and yet cannot possibly comprehend his worth. Christmas is in many ways mere cultural tradition. Now, of course, cultural tradition in itself is not bad. One atheist reflecting upon the birth of Christ as it stands in the divide between B.C. and, and, uh, and A.D., conceded that even time itself has been Christianized. We look around us and there are so many uh, things that have been embedded in our culture that are Christian in nature. Um, and so in one sense, I am glad that the Christmas season today in our country is, in a sense, Christianized. I am glad that there are unbelievers who sing the gospel at Christmas. I just hope and pray that they come to embrace it, what it really means. But if we are going to do more than just celebrate a shell of Christmas, we are going to need a little bit more information on what exactly is going on this time of year. And in light of this, I would like to look today at a portion of text from Luke chapter 1, most often referred to as the Magnificat. The word Magnificat is the first word of Mary's song of praise to God in the Latin translation. So this song of praise, translated into Latin, begins with the word magnificat. And of course, this simply means in Latin, my soul magnifies the Lord. What it means. Magnificat means my soul magnifies the Lord. And so hence Mary's song or her poem or her canticle is called the Magnificat. And so let's read this together beginning in verse 46 of Luke 1. We're only going to look at the first couple of verses here. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now in order to understand the context here, you will recall that uh, in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, who is engaged to Joseph. Mary is, of course, as we know, a virgin, and uh, she listens as the angel announces to her that she is going to have a child. Gabriel tells her that she will have the child even though she is a virgin because God's power is going to overshadow her. And no doubt, of course, uh, this this is uh, an overwhelming experience for Mary. Uh, No doubt there will be talks of scandal uh, talks of uh, and rumors of immorality, and yet Mary simply trusts herself to the Lord. Sometime later, after this announcement, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. 
Now Elizabeth, who was barren, now is also pregnant and with child. She's carrying John the Baptist. And when Mary steps into the house, John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, leaps for joy because Christ has entered the house in Mary's womb. And Elizabeth, then filled with the Spirit, exclaims that Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. And so look at what Elizabeth says in Luke 1, same chapter, verses 41 through 43. We read this, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? At this point, it is very obvious that Mary will soon be giving birth to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mary now, with all of this context in place, the announcement that has been made, the uh, praise coming from Elizabeth, uh, the leaping in her womb of John the Baptist, Mary now responds to all of these events with a laser-like focus of praise going in one direction, and that is to the Lord God. Her words that were spoken 2,000 years ago are recorded for us in this passage, and we're looking at the first part of this. Mary begins her praise to the Lord in verse 46 by simply saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. One immediately is struck at how God-focused her praise is. It stands in stark contrast to much of what passes today as Christian worship and much of the hollow Christmas celebration that takes place today. Mary directs all praise away from self and to God. He is the sole and the lone object of her worship. The word magnify in the Greek means to cause to be large. This could refer to physical things or non-physical things. To make large or to make great. It also could mean and means to cause to be held in greater esteem through praise or deeds. To exalt, glorify, magnify, speak highly of. This same word magnify that's found here in Luke 1 is also found in Acts chapter 10 and verse 46. And in this verse... The ESV translates it as extolling. And so we see, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They're praising, elevating, magnifying God. The word also could be used negatively. um, And that is making or extolling things that you shouldn't extol. Worshiping or magnifying things that you shouldn't. And so in this way... Um, It is used negatively to describe the the, the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 in verse 5. In this verse, it's translated with the word long. It's the last word of the verse here. Um, And Jesus, of course, is rebuking the scribes and Pharisees. And he says that they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. This idea of extolling or making big, making great. 
In other words, I put these two verses side by side to simply come to this conclusion. When men extol themselves, it is bad. When men extol the Lord, it is good. And we see that the object of your praise and the object of your worship is important. It is crucial. It's foundational, in fact. Mary, then, we see here, is extolling the Lord. She's not drawing praise to herself. She's not drawing attention to herself. She's simply exalting, magnifying, and worshiping the Lord. And then we read here in verse 47, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, what's very interesting about verse 47 is, what does Mary call God? Her what? Her Savior. Yes, Mary calls God her Savior, which means something. Okay? It means that Mary requires what? Salvation. She needs saving. If she were to call God her Savior then Mary herself requires salvation, okay? And to state the obvious here, uh, even, even, even if the, the answer to this is clear as day, we're going to ask this question, what did Mary require saving from? What was it that she required saving from? And it, of course, is her sin. Uh, now, this is a rather interesting observation, particularly in light of the Catholic teaching that Mary was without sin. That is the claim of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, according to Catholic Answers, um, a Catholic website, the way that they handle this verse is that they say, yes, we agree that Mary was saved from sin. However... They add a little caveat to this. They say Mary was not saved from sin in the way that you and I are saved from sin. They say that Mary was saved from her sin in the sense that God prevented her from committing any sins at all. How was she saved from sin? She was saved from ever even committing sins at all. And so in that sense, they claim that God is her savior. In other words, they say, yes, God was Mary's Savior, and he did save her from her sin, but he saved her from ever even committing them to begin with. If this sounds silly, it's because it is. According to Romans 3.23, how many people have sinned? All have sinned. This, of course, includes Mary. Jesus is not saving anyone from sin in a preventative sense here as the claim is with Mary. Jesus is saving people from their sins in a curative sense. The disease has already struck. I already am sick. I already have sinned. We all, as a human race, already have sinned. We have a sinful nature, and we act that sinful nature out in sinful deeds. You, me, the whole lot of us, Mary, every human. And Jesus saves people from that because he's kind and merciful. And the point of this, of all of this, is simply to acknowledge a foundational truth that we need to understand here at Christmas and really all throughout the year, and that is that every single one of us is in the same position. Okay, there's no one 
who is exempted from this. There's no one who can say, I am without sin. And there's no one who can say that I am without a need to be saved. We all are in the same position. And just in case it's not clear, let's go ahead and just read the, the, the Romans passage. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't get to the celebration without stopping here first. I mean, this is one of the stops on the way to the celebration. Before you can get to the presence and the eggnog and the Nat King Cole, you need to know this as a foundation. Before we can get to any of that, you are a lost and helpless sinner and you need saving. That's at least one thing we can learn from the Magnificat. Mary places herself in the same exact position that you and I are in. We are all in the same position. All have sinned. All require saving. Of course, this gets glossed over quite frequently. Uh, We attended this year's uh, journey to Bethlehem down in Walnut Creek. Um, And if you have not been, I really recommend that you go to this. It's actually a really... Nice event. We, we enjoy walking through all of these things. Uh, but I could not help but notice something uh, slightly out of place when we got to the live nativity scene, uh, and there was a narrator that was describing the scene in front of us. And uh, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this here, but he said something, to the, something like this. He said, what if this little baby boy came to teach us that true riches cannot be found in money and possessions, but in humility and service. And that was his description of the scene that was unfolding in front of us. Now, to be sure, and just so no one misunderstands what I'm saying here, I agree with that statement. Jesus teaches us how to be humble, and he teaches us where true riches can be found. Um, I look at my family, and I think of, in the words of one songwriter, that I am wealthier than kings. There is wealth there. Um, I look at a humble, serving Christian, someone who does not care what other people think and just has his or her hand to the plow and is faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what comes back their way. And I think to myself that that person is very rich. And, And these are lessons that Jesus does teach us. At the same time, we have to understand that Jesus came for more than that. And that that is not the purpose, like the center of the bullseye of why he came. The Bible tells us very clearly in Matthew 21, or Matthew 121, the purpose of his coming. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for... The word for is indicating purpose, intention, the reason. Why will she bear a son? Because this son will save his people from their sins. You can't talk about Christmas without Matthew 121. You you can't talk about the nativity without this. You can't talk about Christmas without, you can't talk about Christ without, you can't talk about any of these things without this. If you remove this, then, then you just, you completely just 
turn Christmas into what we opened with, and that is a shallow shell that has no meaning, purpose, or value. What I am saying in all of this discussion here is that we are sinful people who are destined for an eternity in a place called hell, and we all need rescuing. People who do uh, not know this are people who, they're like people who accidentally stumble off of the street into a wedding reception thinking that it's just free food today. There's no connection between the event itself and the celebration, meaning that for us, the celebration of Christmas must be strongly linked to our need for a Savior, our lostness, and then to our saving. Now, who recognizes this in the passage? Mary recognizes this. This is what she's praising God about. She recognizes that she needs saving. She continues in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. The Lord has looked on Mary's humble condition. He has shown her great favor. Because of that, Mary says that all generations will call her blessed. And you know what? We should do that. We should call Mary blessed. She was blessed in in a unique way uh, with the task the Lord had called her to do. We should call her blessed because the passage tells us to. We should not let Catholic errors prevent us from calling Mary blessed. She was chosen for a very honorable and noble task, and to this end, she is blessed. Now, I can't help but comment a little bit on this. The Catholic error is to venerate or to worship Mary. And I just want to bring another passage to bear on this to show that Jesus Christ himself essentially said, be careful that this doesn't get off the rails. Okay? And so in Luke 11, 27 through 28, we read, And he said these, as he said these things... A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, that's saying to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But, but he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You see, Luke 1 helps us to see that Mary is certainly blessed, but Luke 11 helps us to keep our feet firmly planted on the ground lest things get out of hand. And as we know, things have gotten out of hand in some places. Pope Benedict XV, who was the Pope from 1914 to 1922, said that Mary essentially suffered along with Christ. And her suffering was added to Christ's suffering and the joint suffering of Mary and Jesus together is what redeemed humanity from their sin. Okay, I'm going to just read to you from him directly so that you can see this. Pope Benedict XV said, by the way, just clear, I'm not endorsing this. This is on the screen. Please, this is... (laughs) Okay, this is what he said. He said, to such an extent... Did she, that is Mary, suffer and almost die with her suffering and dying son 
To such extent did she surrender her maternal rights over to her son for man's salvation and offered him as a sacrifice insofar as she could in order to appease the justice of God that we may rightly say she redeemed the human race together with Christ. There is no other word to describe this but complete and total blasphemy. To claim that another human being had something in and of themselves to contribute to the salvation of the human race is the height of arrogance. This is not what Mary meant in her Magnificat when she said, all generations will call me blessed. And I don't know if she's able to look down at this earth or cares to look down at this earth, but I, if she is able to, I cannot help but think that she is absolutely grieved and angry to see that this is what people have done with her. Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is a claim to put Mary on par with Jesus attempting to put her suffering in the same ballpark as Christ and claiming that her suffering carried with it redemptive power. Mary is blessed, but according to Jesus, we ought not put her on a pedestal. That's God's rightful place. Nobody goes on the pedestal but God alone. Not Mary, not you, not me, not any other human. It is the soul, it is reserved solely for the Lord. God and God alone is the only one who receives our worship. And it's silly because that people come to these conclusions because look at the Magnificat. Mary herself is taking all of the praise and funneling it to God. She's providing a a sufficient example for what we ought to do. She says in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I want to draw our attention to two things in verse 49. Uh, This is a theme that I pick up on from time to time as I am preaching through the Psalms on Wednesday evenings. And you will note that Mary praises God for two things. You guys know what the two things are we praise God for? Who he is and what he does, okay? Okay. Um, Another way of saying this is that we praise God for his character and his works. Now, do you see in the verse where Mary praises God for his character? It's when she says, holy is his name. She attributes holiness to him. God is holy. And then likewise, she she, uh, praises God for his works. He has done what? Great things for her. Now, what great things has he done for her that she is praising him for? Well, first... If we go back to verse 47, and where she says God is her Savior, we recognize that one of the things God has done for Mary is he has saved her. Okay? He has forgiven Mary for her sin. Second, he has blessed her in that he has chosen to use her as the one through which the Lord Jesus Christ would come. And so, in a similar way, we can reflect on what the Lord has done for us this Christmas. But what does all of this mean for us here this year and for Christmas? 
We need to look closely at Mary's Magnificat so that we can know the right role to play. We might say it this way. The actors in this unfolding drama are playing their parts flawlessly. God is the one receiving the worship. Mary is the one giving it. Likewise, God is the one giving forgiveness of sins, and Mary is the one receiving forgiveness of sins. Mary is the one magnifying the Lord, and the Lord is the one who receives that magnification. The problem with hollow Christmas celebrations today is that the human beings in the drama are not playing their parts flawlessly. In fact, they've completely fumbled their role. And in order to return to a right and proper understanding of Christmas, we need to begin at a minimum with getting our part right. Okay, so here's a good first base, okay? God deserves worship and we do not. We're going to start there. Okay, that's foundational. God is holy and we are not. God is God and we are not. But beyond this foundational understanding, it must be remembered that Jesus did not come to this earth merely to give us a good example to follow or merely to show us what humility looks like or merely to demonstrate God's love or merely to demonstrate divine justice or anything else like that. And once again, I will say that I am not saying that, that these things are, are bad in any way. Jesus does provide us an example to follow in these kinds of things. Um, Jesus came to atone for sin and save his people from their sin. The reason that our culture likes to skip this, to conveniently skip this part of the story which happens to be the the center of the middle of it, and only touch on peripheral things, the reason that we like to skip that middle part is because if I say that God is my Savior, then I have to admit that I am a bad person and a sinner. And I would rather have a Savior who just came to kind of improve my life a little bit than, than a Savior who has to pull me out of the pit of despair and give breathe new life into me. And so the, the reason that we, that we hate to say God is my Savior is because it also says a corresponding reality about my own soul that I'm not easy with. But if you remove that, then what, what, what's the purpose of his coming? Why did he have to come? So here's the bottom line. You are a sinner. You are so sinful that God cannot and will not overlook it. You deserve his wrath in hell for eternity. I deserve his wrath in hell for eternity. You deserve to be punished, and God is just and holy and right to carry that out. You don't deserve leniency. You don't deserve an exception to the rule. Your sin will not be swept under a rug. God is really angry with sinners And he really does, as Psalm 5 says, hate the wicked man, not just the sin of the wicked man. But Jesus came to this earth, in the words of Matthew 1, to save his people from their sins. His purpose was clear, it was direct, and it was to the point. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I deserve. He died in your place. And he says that if you will repent of your sins, 
and trust in him alone for salvation, that he will save you from your sins. And so we invite anyone here today to repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This invitation is open to anyone who would simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. After the Israelites came out on the other side of the Red Sea, they immediately began to celebrate. They sang a song to the Lord that is recorded for us in Exodus 15. But imagine, if you will, that there's a stranger who walks up to those Israelites after they get through on the other side of the Red Sea, and this stranger begins to join in with them in the celebration. Imagine that he begins singing and dancing with them and uh, picking up on the lyrics and, and singing with these people. His celebration would be hollow because he wasn't delivered or saved from anything. For the Israelites, their celebration takes on a whole new meaning. It's substantive. It's meaningful. It's full of life and joy. The Lord has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea, and he has delivered us from slavery. Their singing means something. There's there's something substantive there. It's full of life. It's full of joy. And in the same way, there are many hollow Christmas celebrations today. People who have never been delivered from sin are celebrating a victory that is not theirs. And yet, in God's grace, there are still people walking on planet Earth that for them, the celebration is real. It is weighty. It is substantive. My prayer for you is that you are part of this second group, that the celebration for you is not hollow, but it's meaningful. I hope and I trust that the celebration of Christmas has meaning for you. And if that is you, then you know what my application for you is? Lean into the celebration. Feast. Praise the Lord. Eat the food and listen to the music and exchange the gifts with thanksgiving and praise and thank the Lord for the great salvation that he has wrought for you. And if this is not you, then my admonition to you is that you would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then join in on the celebration. We're not trying to keep anyone from the celebration. We want people to come in and to enjoy Christmas and to enjoy the singing and the music and the feasting and the people and the fellowship and all of these things. We just want it to mean something for you, mean something substantive, and that is that you are celebrating that the victory that Christ has wrought on the cross is your victory over sin, over death, and that you will one day be with him for all of eternity. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. Thank you for Christmas. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And if there be anyone who does not know Christ as Savior, that you would help them to repent and believe upon Jesus. We pray that you would be merciful to them, that the celebration of Christmas, perhaps maybe even for someone for the first time this year, would not be hollow, but would be full of themes of redemption and joy because of what you have done for them, we pray in Jesus.